Hello and welcome to Beheaded. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 4. I'm Megan Moore. And I'm Elizabeth Black. No longer a snuffleupagus. She sounds great today. Like super clear nasal passages all day. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. I listened to the last episode. I'm like, wow, I was... It wasn't too bad. I kept snotting into the microphone. <laughs> There's some snot we had to wipe off of the microphone for this time. The whole time was like... <sighs> Like sniffing. I feel great today. I'm no, fine. It wasn't bad. I listened to it too the last episode. And, uh, you know, I noticed at the beginning, obviously, when we pointed out your snuffiness. But throughout the episode, I did not notice it. Yeah. It is the week of the Yule log. <laughs> I'm British. I'm trying to be British. Oh, I'm sorry. If you didn't know, Megan's British now. It's the week of Christmas. It is the week of Christmas. And it's like it's such an exciting week. I'm very busy with work. Maybe most of your work is winding down. I'm busy. You're busy too? Every single <sighs> customer wants to know why FedEx has not delivered their package. And they like, say, talking to me has nothing to do with it. They're like, I just, why? Why aren't you like Amazon and can deliver me my things next oh, day? For those who don't know, I work in an online retail. I'm a customer support manager. I'm the lead customer support manager. So I take the escalations of the escalations of the escalations. They're really pissed off And people. they're just like... They said it was going to be delivered on Thursday, and it is now Monday, and FedEx is still in transit. I'm like, yes, <laughs> FedEx says it will be delivered on Tuesday. And so you have to say things like, I understand your frustration, ma'am. I say that a lot. And this is my line. As a consumer myself, <laughs> I also understand the frustrations you're going through. That's a good line. It makes them know you're human and you also deal with these things. I'm also an online consumer as we all shop online. Are. We've all had. We all like, are. Oh, the everything, like all the shipping. Like it's a, I, I'm trying to say now, like this is not an us problem. This is like a universal issue that is right. happening right now with delays and back orders. Well, right now Manufacturers. Too. Yeah, the year of COVID, we all oh. know about supply issues. Okay, deep breath. It's the holidays. It's We're f as we record this, maybe not when you listen, but as we re we record, it, we're five days from Christmas. Oh my god! I know you. No, <laughs> no. I mean, yes, I love Christmas, but I just feel unprepared. My parents are visiting. <gasps> I have to make a menu. Yes. I don't even know. It's the first time I've ever hosted Christmas, and I Wait, don't. I don't don't know what you're doing. No, I do. Trader I'm 33 Joe's. years old. Go I should Trader honestly, Joe's. I try to be like, yeah, good about making things from scratch, but I think I'm going to no, no, Trader no. Joe's it Trader this Joe's year. It. You get their potatoes, you get yeah. their like Cornish hen, you okay. put their Brussels sprouts, okay. you put it all together. Okay. I'm going to do that because mm -hmm. I, I can't. I was going to make a bagged salmon thing from scratch and I just can't. I'm like not in the mental head space. I'm going to Trader Joe's it. That's yeah, a great idea. Do it. Okay. Okay. I'll what do you want for Christmas? Pictures. Me and Megan have a good tradition of giving each other old books for Christmas. <laughs> She's looking Are at me. Are we doing me. that this year? <laughs> I secured an old book for you. And oh, thanks. Well, last year I didn't. I know. I didn't, we I were bad about that. I got that. a DVD in May, so okay. I wasn't sure. <laughs> We were doing okay, it. Okay, last year, year was a, a rough year. We were going through a lot of life changes in the year, and we didn't really have time for a formal gift exchange, especially because we hang out all the time. So, like, yeah, 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 we'll get you. Like, we'll get each other. Don't worry. I got you. you no, know, but you got me like a modern day Mars and Noble book. That's what I thought we were doing. No, you didn't. You, you know, we always do an old novel of sorts. It was an old novel in a modern day <laughs> print. 
Okay. That works. No, I loved Megan's gift and I still have it and I enjoy it and it's part of my decor. Um, It was like a supernatural stories, one of those Barnes and Noble illuminated textbook is beautiful. And I meant to get Megan an old book too. And like a couple months went by and I was like, fuck it. Like, Megan, I, you love the movie Rebecca. I'm getting you the 1940, like Alfred Hitchcock version of Rebecca that's on Blu-ray. And we watched it. We had a whole, I think we told you about it. So you're giving me shit about not giving it. No, we, we both, we both, we both gave each other a gift. And that's what's important last year. And I intend to get you a gift. I got, I told you about one earlier this afternoon. It's, I already it's, forgot it. It's part of your gift. Something oh. I stole from the office. Oh. From our 1920s art deco <gasps> room. Oh. That's part of the gift, but then there's another part of the gift. Okay, well, I'm going to get you a gift. But it's a book, old book related. Okay. Now we sound stupid because we're just dancing around the gift ideas we had for each other. But I, my mind is like going a <laughs> mile a minute trying to figure out what I'm going to do in the next five days. No, it's fine. But I'm also going to be gone on Christmas. So it's I'll like, be gone on the 23rd. So we'll do like a New oh, Year's So exchange. we'll do like when we get back into town mm-hmm. and we're ready to podcast again, we'll do a gift exchange. Maybe we'll do a live recording of the gift exchange. Oh, oh. Now I'm so nervous. <laughs> literally thought we were doing nothing so this is is fine this is cool it's not gonna no but that's why we do rules around birthdays and holiday because we don't want a book we don't yeah we don't want it to be like high pressure like oh my gosh Mm -mm. gosh i got you the best gift ever like you know we've known each other a few years and we know what we like so we don't try to make it like this out gifting each other thing we make it like on our birthdays we get coffee table books for each other yes and on christmas we give old novels like preferably from an old secondhand store to each other don't look at me like that's new (laughs) that's a thing we discussed (laughs) it is but have we ever done it (laughs) Um, Who is our victim today? I was thinking about Christmas. And naturally you thought about Nazis. Duh. And I was thinking (laughs) about Nazi executions. Mm, I tend to think about that during the holidays. Yeah. Well, I'm a solid 50.0% Jewish. Wow. So Nazi things kind of relate to me. (laughs) That sounds terrible. (laughs) My mom... Who's not the Jew side of my family. She's the Catholic side of your family. She loves, like, World War II history yeah. and Jewish history and Nazis. Not loves Nazis, but you know. She like, doesn't love the Nazis. It's very intriguing and right. sad. The history So of it. she sends me, like, stacks of books to read. And they're always, like, historical fiction. And right. I have a pile that I've been kind of going through. And I have to, like, mix it up because they're so darn sad. So I have to, like, read one and then read something else. <laughs> and then and read, read a, and Elizabeth the First book and then go and back go to back your to Nazi the, books. Yeah, I go back to Anne Boleyn and then I'll read a Nazi <laughs> book. And then I'll read Mary Just, Queen of Scots and then I read a Nazi book. And I that's... Check this out weeks ago for a bit of light reading. <laughs> it's all light reading. And the last one I read, I thought it was completely historical fiction. Mm. Then I read the afterward and find out, no, this these were real people. And, like, my jaw drops. I'm like, what? So, and I immediately texted Elizabeth and I said, I've got a story for us. Yes. And that's the story of tonight. It's a good one. Sophie Scholl. Sophie Scholl. Sophie and Hans Scholl. Her brother. We can include her brother into it, but we are feminists, so we like Sophie. Sophie's better. And we talk about too many men, aka almost no men on this podcast. Although season two was primarily (laughs) women. But we still like the female, the female protagonist on this podcast. Um, So I will say in the last episode, we talked about really loving like 
the martyrs and yeah yeah and our last episode was someone who like totally deserved it he was a serial killer yeah like, got everything he got yes and sophie we're gonna go back to the martyr the, back some, to the martyr and someone who was really just a amazing human mm-hmm. and didn't deserve what she got <laughs> not at all i mean so young by the time she was executed very sad and just to give a quick synopsis of who she was before we get into her whole story, um, she was a German student and she was an anti-Nazi political activist. Um, she was remember she was a member of the nonviolent resistance group called the White Rose Group. Love it, which we'll get into. Um, but again, very young, very idealistic. I think a lot of us can kind of relate to her in our early years of maybe. Being, you know, out of high school, a young adolescent, like young in college type of thing of our very world-renowned idealistic views. So we'll go into all of that. But Sophie Scholl um, was born Sophia Magdalena Scholl, I believe that's how you say. Um, Her mother's name was, surprise, Magdalena. Um, Her father was Robert Scholl who was a liberal politician um, and a Nazi critic in southern Germany. And he was actually the mayor of um, our main character Sophie's hometown called, and I'm going to, again, apologize if we butcher the German names as we usually do, but Forenberg am Kosher. Yes? Does that sound correct? Mm, sure. It's a town in southern Italy. We can call it Forenberg for short. Um, but it was in the Free People States of Wittenberg in southern Germany. And so uh, Robert and Magdalena, they had six children altogether. We looked it up. We're not going to confuse you with the number of children this episode. She <laughs> we've, was the fourth of we've six. We've been bad at that. But yeah, Sophie was fourth of six. So, okay, they were raised in a big Lutheran family, again, in the south of Germany. Um, and by 1930, so at this point, she is nine years old, Miss Sophie, and they moved to Ludwinsburg. And two years later, 1932, they moved to a town called Ulm. Um, again, another town in southern Germany. So 1932, she begins secondary school. Um, and this is the point where she uh, joins what some something that's called the something that's called the League of German Girls. Oh, shit. You're German. <laughs> I just slipped into a German accent there in case you didn't notice. Um, and the League of German Girls is kind of similar to what people know as like the Hitler Youth Program with boys. So Hans, her brother, did join the her, the Hitler Youth Program. And these were both programs where the girls were essentially conditioned to be future housewives, like future wives of leaders who were going to be in the military, who were going to be part of the Nazi uh, army. And Hans, again, Hitler Youth Program is pretty self-explanatory, but you essentially learn how to be a Nazi from a young age. Um, So they were both very good kind of students, I guess you should say, in these groups. Both of them rose to leadership positions, were very well known in their groups, were very smart, quick to rise in their programs. But both of them were already at this time pretty disillusioned with the ideas of the Nazi party. Even though they were a part of them, they knew, hey, this this is this is weird, right? Like, this is weird to be a part of these groups where you're being told, this is how to be the perfect housewife. And this is how the, this is how to, to be the perfect military man kind of thing. Barf. Barf. A little gross. Mm. And I was in a sorority. 
<laughs> Zing. No, but it's like it's one of those things where it's like when they're in it, they they know that something isn't quite right. Um, so aside from those two programs, Sophie was very talented in painting, drawing. She had a huge love of reading, um, especially any kind of reading that involved philosophy or theology. So by 1940, um, she graduated from secondary school. She almost didn't graduate at this point because by 1940, after the eight years that she'd really been a part of this German girls group, and again, her disillusionment, she became very dismissive of Nazi ideas. She disliked participating at that point. So even though she was smart enough to rise in the ranks of this program, she really didn't understand the doctrine of this program. She didn't agree with the doctrine. And neither did Hans, her brother. They both kind of grew up in this very liberal household with free thinking and free ideas. And now that they're in this militant kind of organization, they were like, I'm sorry, what? Like, no. I mean, they were they they got to be, you know, older at that point and have a certain mind for thinking for themselves. So they became very distant to the ideas that started infiltrating their Nazi organizations. And at this point, too, the ideas that infiltrated their schools, their own schools that they were in, really became infiltrated with Nazi doctrine. So they took a step back and said, this is not really who we want to become. So they didn't quite vocalize it to each other outwardly yet, but they knew something was wrong. So right after she graduated from secondary school, Sophie became a kindergarten teacher, which is funny. I was also a kindergarten teacher. We, we've all been through that phase, I suppose. Um, but but she became a kindergarten teacher because she thought uh, that she could escape the National Labor Service, which was basically the prerequisite to going to university. So she said, if I become a kindergarten teacher, I can get around this, and eventually I can qualify for university, which ended up to be a wrong notion. It was a wrong idea. She did have to eventually um, join the National Labor Service in some capacity. So in 1941, she actually had to become a nursery teacher in Bloomberg, which is a very militant type position, very regimented. Um, And that's when she, again, got her prerequisite for university. But during that time, she understood that she had to become kind of a passive resistant to this Nazi way you know everything at that time was overtaken by the nazi way of thinking and so she learned a passive way to be resistant to this movement so becomes a kindergarten teacher so slow like slowly merges into her nursery teacher role and becomes a passive resistant until she can qualify for university so by may 1942 She finally enrolls in the University of Munich, and there she becomes a biology student, a philosophy student. Um, Her brother Hans is already there studying medicine, and that's when she really understands her ideas a little bit more and understands a little bit more of who she wants to be. I do want to say her father in 1942 Mm -hmm. was also imprisoned for making a critical remark about Hitler while at work. The Fuhrer. He said something along the lines of calling Hitler the scourge of God. Right. <laughs> so you can see the the bloodline that she's in mm-hmm. and her upbringing. And now she's in school with Hans. And they clearly both have a father who was a, a very liberal leader and very uh, – he was a politician who's very liberal and he was very anti-Nazi. Mm-hmm. So it's already in their genes and it's in their blood and they're growing up with this. Right. But she's now at the university with her older brother, Hans. Yep. And Hans is, is studying medicine. However, he does switch his degree from medicine to religion, 
philosophy and the arts. And like, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty drastic switch to go from being a doctor to being a philosopher. Totally. And, and an artist. Unless you're in the days of like, you know, the cosmic crisp guy. <laughs> <laughs> they have a pretty cool group of people, though. And I say cool, like, honestly, if I were living in the 1940s at the at the University of Munich, these seem like the cool kids. Mm-hmm. They were very much into writing, philosophy, going to plays. They would go on skiing trips and hiking trips, but then have these lectures and join with other um, uh, professors and talk about theology right. and religion and just very artistic group of people, but very cool. And Sophie started meeting a lot of people through this, and she started meeting a lot of different artists and philosophers and writers and authors. Mm-hmm. And the main group of people who were Hans's friends was Alexander Schmroll, mm-hmm. Willie Graf, Jurgi Whitensten. Perfect. I don't know if I'm saying these names right. <laughs> Sounds about right. These are all of Hans's friends. Right. Um, and they were all passive resistance towards the Nazis. Mm-hmm. They started writing these pamphlets. Very outspoken. Very illegal, shall we say. <laughs> illegal is a good word. <laughs> but they started writing and publishing these leaflets and pamphlets, just anti-Nazism. Right. And the purpose of these pamphlets was telling the German people – you are asleep. Look at what's yes. going on around you. Mm-hmm. Wake up. Look at what's happening. We can say no. We can rise against. How do you believe these Nazis? How are you against all of this racism? And let's say no. Right. And they outlined a lot of the atrocities of Nazism. They were the first ones to say, hey, do you know how many Jewish people we've exterminated? Do you know how many war crimes we've we've inflicted on other they people? They put out the facts. Yeah, they put out the facts, you know. And, and these weren't just ignorant people speaking, you know, in this Munich University. I mean, they at some point were on the battle lines on the Eastern Front as medics. So they saw these things firsthand. And they were saying, guys, like, wake up. Like, what are you doing, Germany? Like, look at all these things that are right it's in front of your face. Like, yeah, don't, don't just fall for the problem propaganda and whatever Hitler is feeding you, like, look what's around you. They became known as the White Rose. Mm-hmm. Very cool name. I love that name. It reminds me of very War of Roses kind of thing. Love it. <laughs> 1942, they've written out four leaflets that they've written and distributed, not throughout only their school at the University of Munich, mm-hmm. but throughout Germany. Sophie started to pick up that her her brother Hans was a part of this very secret, very illegal group amongst the university. Right. Which I love, too, because I love that she didn't just follow whatever her brother did. It's not like she was just by his side the whole time. It's like, oh, you don't agree with Nazism? Me neither. Oh, you believe in this? So do I. Mm -hmm. It was like they both had very independent ways of thinking that arrived at the same point. Where, you know, to the point where she got a leaflet and was like, wow, this is really intriguing. Like, what is this? I had no idea her brother wrote it or was part of writing it. Right, and then through the leaflet traced it back to her brother that she ultimately agreed with which it was cooler than just following with whatever you're being fed from your older sibling yeah and she she finally realized that her brother is helping to write these leaflets right uh at the same time this is about 1942 she she does have a boyfriend she's very sophie very cool girl (laughs) get a girl um fritz hartengall oh i would go for a fritz hartengall 
He was Sophie's boyfriend, mm. and he was deployed to the Eastern Front May 1942. Um... Her brother was also a medic over there at some point. So mm-hmm. they're all, again, involved in World War II at this point and Mostly on the Eastern Front. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And her and Fritz are exchanging letters. Funny enough, these letters eventually become, like, a point of defense in her very, like, lack of, like, defense in her trial, which we'll get to. Right. But they do use these letters as correspondence between her and her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And her boyfriend has reported about these German war crimes that he's seeing as a German. Yeah. He's saying, whoa, Sophie, you will not believe what I'm seeing. They are killing prisoner of wars at gunshot over over pits. Like mass graves kind of thing. Yeah, they would have the mass graves and make them all stand up. And this (laughs) is very dark, but... It's what happened, and it's very sad. Mm-hmm. Um, there were mass killings of, the, obviously, the Jews, the prisoner of wars, and he was just reporting all these back to her in letters, and she was flabbergasted over it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of their letters were about theology, and they actually got to very deep matters. She discussed philosophy and theology and religion to him, and trying to find reason, I think, behind, like, okay, how is our country doing this, and mm-hmm. where do we stand, and where are our beliefs, and... All of these things are things you do not want to be corresponding over borderlines. Yeah. Um, these days, it's like the equivalent of sending an email that's super incriminating, right? Exactly. Like, you, you can't do it. <laughs> um, so the White Rose is, has formed, and that, again, consists of her brother Hans, Alexander, Willie Graf, Christoph Probst is another main character. In 1942, Sophie officially became part of the white rose nice her reasoning with kind of becoming part of the club is because (laughs) she's a woman she's the first woman to join it she's like whoa when the ss and the gestapo want to stop you just do random checks they're less likely to stop a woman it's true who looks very innocent right and at this point she's about 20 21 years old right and the gestapo just so you know is the nazi secret police who are infiltrated the country at this time yes she said you need a woman in your club mm-hmm. so that I can be more inconspicuous and help distribute your pamphlets. I like that. And the pamphlets were being distributed. <laughs> <laughs> they had up to five successful pamphlets distributed that were very straightforward about, like we said, anti-Nazism and right. you outlining have to stand up against why are you asleep. Mm-hmm. And they would travel across Europe and drop these pamphlets around secretly just for people to find them and read them and hope that they get into the hands of, of enough people to rise a resistance against what was happening. Right. Yeah, and, and so February 18th, 1943, this is when they have this big plan, Hans and Sophie, to print a whole suitcase full of leaflets. I believe this was their uh, fifth leaflet in circulation. There are six. Oh, six. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was their sixth one. They already had five distributed at this point. So their sixth leaflet, they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. This is very reminiscent of Mean Girls. If you haven't seen it yet, (laughs) um, reference Regina George. But what they do is they go and they just place a bunch of stacks of these leaflets around the corridors in the university. So they put all of them, you know, in areas where people coming out of lectures will see them and take them and, you know, hopefully read them. And then Sophie takes it an extra mile and she says, you know, what? we've got all these extras. We've already dropped all these stacks and all these corridors. I'm just going to go to the top floor and just go ahead and throw them off of the ledge and hope they all fall down the atrium. So, again, if you haven't seen Mean Girls, Regina George style, she just kind of 
throws them all over the school and is like, yo, read all my leaflets we just Mm -hmm. published. Um, So it's a very liberating moment for her and Hans. They go, they distribute all these leaflets. But at the same time, one of the janitors of the school sees this happen. And in this day and age of Nazi Germany, you never know who's on what side. You never know who's out for themselves or who's out to be a spy. So this janitor, of course, his name's Jakob Schmidt. He is a self-avowed Nazi. Even though he's just a janitor for the school, he sees this happen. He sees her throw all these pamphlets over this uh, this ledge that goes into the main atrium of the school. And he says immediately, hey... She's a troublemaker. We found one of the distributors of these pamphlets that have been going around, and he immediately turns her into the Gestapo, which, again, is the Nazi secret police. So the Nazi secret police, they they are so excited about Jacob's discovery, Jacob. Um, he literally gets an award and a promotion because he turned her in. And so at this point, they have her in custody, and they quickly also trace this back to Hans. So they have now Hans and Sophie in custody. And what's worse is that Hans already has the draft of the seventh leaflet on Mm. him. So not only was he just caught distributing all these six leaflets, but he's got the seventh one on him in his jacket. And they, they said that he even tried to, like, tear it apart. He tried to swallow it. He tried to get rid of it in a certain amount of ways. And they eventually just, you know, took it all up and they said, nope. All of this matches what you have in your apartment. We know that you're the person that's been drafting all of these. And so they have solid evidence against Hans. So at this point, we have this guy, Robert Moore, who's the main interrogator. He's the one that kind of, again, questions Hans and Sophie. And originally, he thought Hans was more the instigator and Sophie was rather innocent. But as soon as Hans came around to confessing and said, yes, I did write these. These are my thoughts. This is what I think. Sophie did the same. Sophie wasn't one to really back down from a challenge, and she wanted to protect the rest of the members of the White Rose. So she wasn't about to say, oh my gosh, no, I'm just young and innocent and all of this, and these people are all the ones responsible. She stood up and said, no, these are my thoughts. This is my brother. I stand with him. These are our ideas. No one else is responsible for these two things, you know, or these six things, I guess, at this point, but me and Hans. So they both confessed to writing all of the pamphlets. Hero. Hero! <laughs> Protected all the other members that were a part of it, even though she was probably one of the newest members and the only female member. That's so hard to do. Like, imagine being interrogated by the Nazis yeah. overnight like that. And you know what they're capable of at this point, too. She's more than well aware of what her fate is, yeah. I think. They were not fooling around. No. And there was the chance that maybe she could get off with just going to a, a work camp, a concentration camp, basically. <laughs> Because everyone just gets off from a concentration Yeah, which, camp. of course, like, little does she know, that's just as much of a death sentence as totally. an actual execution. Right. Um, but it's, that that was the alternative, is, or, you know, being held in prison forever. Right. So, by February 22nd, 1943, um, she is taken to the People's Court with her brother. Um, so, they are, again, at this point, on trial. And what's interesting is Sophie's dad at this point tries to go and speak, you know, on their behalf in the trial, and he's completely banned. Um, Apparently, he and the mother kind of went to speak on their children's behalf, and they were not allowed in court. So Sophie's only quote from this whole trial, because they weren't really allowed a whole lot of defense or testimony. Um, What she said, though, in court was, somebody, after all, 
has to make a start. What we wrote and said is also believed by many others. They just don't dare express themselves as we did. So this was a very famous thing that she said while she was on trial. And again, you know, not, not a lot of people were in her quarter, only her, you know, her parents weren't even allowed. Um, so at this point, they now have Hans, they have Sophie, and they even pulled their friend. Uh, Christoph. Um, yeah, Christoph. I, keep, I wrote his name as Christian. Christoph Probst. Um, and so they have them. And during the course of one day, one day on February 22nd, they say, you're condemned to death. The three of you. So not a lot goes into this. Again, not a lot of trial or deliberation or whatever. They already have an executioner lined up whose name is Johan Ricard. And they say, hey, 5 p.m. today, you're all executed by guillotine. 5 p.m. It's basically like we've heard a lot of execution stories, even from, you know, Socrates. Like, yeah, they, they allow days, not weeks, if months. A lot of them do. It's a lot of deliberation. Think of Marie Antoinette where she was waiting. in prison for, what, 10 months or so? Yeah. It's very she, common for prisoners to be in prison for a lot of months before any kind of execution uh, is even discussed. Thomas More was in there for years. Yeah. Maybe two years. Yeah. This is the less same day. Than, less than five hours, I would say. <laughs> that's that's gross. It's like she was in prison for four days. Like she was arrested on the 18th. And by the 22nd, when they had the trial, they decided the sentence and wanted to carry it out. I actually looked up what days it was. Like of the week? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The 18th was a Thursday in 1943. Oh, okay. They were interrogated through Friday. Mm-hmm. It was the weekend. No one was working, so they were just held in prison. <laughs> my god monday morning is when they started the trial by monday at 5 p.m they that's were executed stupid <laughs> that's Thursday, that, that was a 48 hour business business rule right there yeah i can't even get a task done in that time at my work <laughs> these days and in this time they decide the fate of three people i thought this part was like pretty heavy so as elizabeth mentioned her parents did tr- did try to go into the courthouse and defend for their children, mm-hmm. and they were not allowed. However, they were allowed to talk to their children before their execution, nice. after they were already sentenced to death. Um, they were escorted back. The guards permitted Hans and Sophie to have one last word with their parents. And this is something that came from... Um, Hans got to speak with her parents first, and this is, like, really sweet, but her mom tried to give him candy, and he said no. Mm. And they wouldn't let Sophie and Hans in together to speak to their parents together. Right. But Hans leaves, and Sophie comes in. And um, I guess her mother offered again the candy that she gave <laughs> to Hans, and Hans declined it. Sophie's response was, gladly, after oh. all, I haven't had any lunch. Me. I'm like, uh, I'm sorry, you have candy? Yes. It's so sad. Is it dark chocolate Reese's? Her mother says, to think you'll never be coming through the door again. Oh, God. So they they know that they're about to be beheaded. Oh, Lord. This is 1943. This is our our grandparents were in this. It's just Totally. Yeah. And I mean, to think about the other 1940s executions that we've had on this podcast, it's usually in a violent way by firing squad. There's very rarely these, like, Sweet I don't moments know why. This one to it. really hit us. This one was a little tough to get through. Yeah. Um, Sophie says, we took everything upon ourselves. We did what, what we did will cause waves. Mm. 
And her mother says, remember Jesus. Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, they have their last goodbyes, her and her parents, and they hug each other. And the guard takes her back to her, her cell. And um, Sophie's been very composed all along. Totally. But she starts weeping, naturally, because she's a human. <laughs> yeah. She tells the guard, I have just said goodbye to my parents. You understand. Um, Johan, the executioner, he started being an executioner, again, from his father. <laughs> it was like a lineage of executioners, which is what we've talked about before, which right. once you're in the execution business in your family, it just kind of goes from father to son. And it's probably lucrative. Nobody wants to have that job. So they pay you, you would buku bucks. think. <laughs> I have some info on his oh. pay. You would think that. Okay. He started in April 1924. Um, and he was the executioner in Bavaria. Ooh. For each execution, mm-hmm. he was paid 150 gold marks plus 10 marks for daily expenses. And then he was given a third class train ticket. Mm, I do that. I, I don't actually have the <laughs> comparison of 150 gold marks to what it would be in either USD or, or pounds. I but- don't know. I'm going to guesstimate... 500 USD. It might be decent, but the thing was, was he was paid per execution, which which was a very archaic practice. Oh, yeah. Think about, like, Anne Boleyn's executioner. They were paid per execution. Oof. Same as him. Right. 1924 to 1928 was a tough time for him. Mm. He only executed 23 people. Oh, shame. In the prison <laughs> system. 1928 alone, he only executed one person. Oh, so that's kind of rough. Like a year, yearly salary. Your yearly sal- is now salary is five hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so he Ooh. had he fell in very rough times because he couldn't execute. Enough yeah, people. he couldn't execute. Enough He's people. like, I'm sorry, we're all the criminals here. <laughs> Spring 1931, he goes to Munich. Okay. 1933, when things start picking up a little bit, he <laughs> signs a contract with Munich, mm-hmm. and he's going to receive a flexed income and he's going to be paid monthly at this point basically like a set salary because we are now in world war ii and have him on retainer he has some more work to do (laughs) and so they figure instead of being paid per person he will be paid on a monthly basis he gets a salary wow 1933, his annual income raises to 3,720 Greek marks. Oh, we keep means. Differing the currency. I wish I had like a understanding. What I I got from this, though, was he started becoming pretty wealthy. Okay. And in 1937, he officially joined the Nazi party. Wow. He's a full-on Nazi executioner making pretty good money from the Nazis. I was going to say, not probably because of ideological choice, probably because of, uh, you know, that's where the money is. That's where the money is, and he has a stable income at this point. Damn. He was the executioner responsible for Munich, Dresden, Stuttgart, and Weimar. Oh, Weimar, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, He was very invested in his practice because... <laughs> His goal was to, um, I mean, again, he's not being paid per execution, but paid monthly. His personal goal was to make the execution process efficient. Oh. And quick. Yes. He made improvements to what he said, quote unquote, would reduce stress from the convicts. Oh, that's kind of nice, right? He thought the quicker we can do it, get him in, get him out. Ooh. 
But he sped up the process of the guillotine. So compare this to your modern day job of like customer service escalation calls. You're like, I just want to get them on and off my phones in an efficient manner you and have your them be AHT, happy. Your average handle time. If that makes sense. Your average handle time goes down, which is all he was trying to do in this era. He made changes such as. <laughs> Instead of actually tying the convict down, he would have his assistants hold them down. Smart. He replaced a flipping board. Sorry. Flipping board. He he replaced a fixed bench with a flipping board. Oh, God. Which is how it kind of like stood up straight. They went down on it. Then they put him down and people kind of pushed him down on it. So it's like a plank that you lay belly flat on. Yeah. Or and you like stand up down. against and they push you down. So you oh, don't. So like an ironing does, board and they yeah. just flip you so down. So the, the, the victim, the person doesn't have to like lay physically down on it. You just kind of stand up. They push you up against it and they flip you down. Which makes sense because if you're doing it on your own like will, you're slower because it's your death. Yeah. Whereas if people push you down, it's faster. I'm sorry. It's called a tipping board. Oh, Yes. Um, he also took off three to four seconds by not blindfolding the person, but just having his assistants cover their eyes My with God. their hands. <laughs> so all of this work goes on the assistants. This is called shadow work, my friends. It means you, as the person enduring the thing, doesn't have to, or you have to kind of do more because now you don't have the luxuries of these old time uh, Just don't get your hands in things. the way. Yeah. So yeah. you just kind of... Deal with substantial work. Oh, God. You push them down. You put them on the tipping board. You cover their eyes. Cover their eyes. Why Why does that help? <laughs> you they still don't want to see shit. I guess. Oh, my they God. They don't want to look at the heads already in the... I was going to say, are there already heads in this vessel that you're about to be tossed into? There might be. Oh, my. We'll get back to Alex Hans and Christoph in a minute. Oh, terrible. Or who's Alex? Sophie Hans. <laughs> Alex drew <laughs> all the friends all together. Um, Johan executed in his career 2,951 people. That's a fuck ton. 250 of them were women. <gasps> Wait, I'm sorry. Only 2,951 by, were by guillotine. 59 additionally were by hangings. Oof. So he was a hangman and a guillotine artist. He was an executioner. He Damn. did all of the above. And he made off pretty wealthy, it sounds. He said that he had never seen anyone die as bravely as Sophie Scholl. And he's an expert. Out of almost, we can round that up to 3,000 people. Are you shitting me? I'm not. I'm not <laughs> shitting you. He said she was the bravest of everyone. That's crazy. Um, before we get back to their executions, really quickly, because there's some more about his history. Um, he was eventually arrested by the U.S. Army by being a member of the Nazis. Duh. And until 1946... He helped the U.S. Army execute 156 Nazis wow. by hangings. So he was basically working for the U.S. while also being a prisoner of the U.S. So now instead of him being, like, hired for his, his ideology, he's just a blood money guy. 
You know? He's also, ironically, still getting paid by the Germans, ah. even though he's being arrested <laughs> and hanging the Nazis. My brain's going to explode. He just hangs everybody. <laughs> he then got rearrested again, like, after he thought he did his sentence. They rearrested uh. him. He went to a labor camp again in 1947. Like, the U.S. labor camp. Yeah. He okay. was sentenced to two and a half years. It got reduced to a year and a half. He got out. He died peacefully at the age of 78 years old. As most executioners do, just nicely in their beds. He was said to be a very lonely person. I imagine. His own son committed suicide because he, like, couldn't handle the upbringing of his family yeah, of being probably from a line of, of the Nazi executioners. fucking night terrors that his father endured from all the executions. <laughs> Let's talk about this guillotine. Okay. His <laughs> father, like... Change the subject. Very much made proficient. This probably proficient. is not a nicer subject than his deaths, but uh, Megan told me before we started this episode, she's like, oh, this was really great. <laughs> he converted the wooden guillotine into a metal guillotine. <laughs> Isn't that yeah, nice? Yeah, think about, like, an old school, like, Marie Antoinette wooden guillotine. This Which is, is like, a steel. Yeah. It's like a metal steel one, and they still have. And we like that better? Like, it's more comfortable to hug the cold metal in front no, of you? No, it's just more reliable, I think. I guess easier to clean. Less rickety. Yeah. If I'm going to clean blood a off wood of a... guillotine versus a metal guillotine, I'd choose the metal one any day so I could just with some Clorox wipes, like, fast. There's not a there's not a wood there's not a woven basket but there's like a metal bin like it's just like a funnel like a metal funnel right that like kind of kind of feeds the heads into a bin yeah ugh better That's than sick. just the basket in front of you um this one got to us i know this one got to us i think it's just we've like been talking real. about a lot of executions obviously this is one of the more modern ones maybe that the photographs it just seems more real it feels very real oh, God. um they merry believe, christmas they believe they actually found the guillotine that johan used on sophie hans and christoph okay and it is located in the the museum of munich wow Ugh. gotta go there if you youtube like Sophie Scholl guillotine. You can find some documentaries of some very old historians showing off the guillotine that was used. Wow. Ugh. And I don't think they cleaned the guillotine in between her execution and Hans's. I don't think they had time to. Right. Because, oh, talk, talk about, about the seconds. This. You know, you talk about the seconds. Well, I, I don't have it on my notes. You do. I have the seconds. But they said between the time that she entered the execution room and was executed was, I believe, 48 seconds. The time from cell to death was 48 seconds. That's You're right. Wild. The time from being placed into the guillotine. Oh. So her being put onto it to the blade falling was a solid six seconds. How do you even measure that? Like, let's count it. Ready? One, One two, two, three, four, five, six. That's Dead. a short amount of time to be placed on a metal. Tipping board, you called it? Tipping board. To the blade going down and severing your neck. Six seconds. Are you fucking kidding me? Ugh. I but mean, she 40, did. from cell to death, less than a minute. 48 seconds. That's wild. I mean, from sentence to death, less than five hours. How did she even get her last words out? Do you want to read them? Okay, yes. I think she read these before they let her from the cell. In the cell, because yeah. her cellmate was the one that recorded yeah, her. Yeah, she didn't have time by the time okay. they took her out. That makes but sense. But these are her last words. Okay. 
So Sophie's last words were, How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause? It is such a splendid sunny day, and I have to go. But how many have to die on the battlefield in these days? How many young, promising lives? What does my death matter if by our acts thousands are warned and alerted? Among the student body, there will certainly be a revolt. Mm. Sophie was the first of the three to be beheaded. Mm. Before they had to be beheaded and they're still in their cell, they were allowed to share a cigarette together. That's nice. Her her brother Hans and Christoph, their friend. Yeah. So they pass around a cigarette. She says her last words. They escort her out. And within 48 seconds, she's she's gone. Um, Christoph was next, mm-hmm. and then Hans was the last of the three, and he had some, he screamed out some words. Right. In that, like, what do you call it, 50 seconds from them Barely. putting him down. As they, as they put him on the thing and they, they, they put the guillotine down, he yells out, long live freedom. I love that. Mm-hmm. Very William Wallace. I feel like their parents must have been proud, but so sad. So Two sad. of their six kids were just guillotined. Yeah, and so for young for such a good cause. Yeah. And, you know, Sophie and Hans were delivered their last rites. Um, Christoph was asked to be baptized right before he died, too. Sweet boy. So they were, they were all very religious in na- nature and, like, again, looking just for a peaceful means of protesting to what they saw around them. They weren't looking for a fight. They weren't looking for, uh, again, like, you know— crazy just like head-to-head rivalry they were just looking to like hey all of us need to wake up and stand up against this and because that they were beheaded at such young age christoph was married his wife just had their third child and she was currently (gasps) in the hospital and that's why she didn't go and visit him that's terrible so he had no one come and visit him in that like five hours he was in there oh christoph or over the weekend i guess right right um later they did Arrest and execute a few more of the White Rose. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex Schmorl, who was only 25. Willie Graff was also 25. And then Kurt Huber, who was their professor at age 49. Jeez. Um, they were all students at the University of Hamburg were either executed or sent to a concentra- concentration camp. Oh, casual. So, yeah, I'm sure some of them made it out. Jeez. Um, Sophie's boyfriend, Fritz, mm. did make it through World War II, came oh, back. Nice. Obviously, Sophie was no longer there, but he married her younger sister, or older sister. I think older sister. Older sister, Elizabeth. Oh, that's kind of nice. So there you go. Very uh, Catherine Aragon of, her, of him. <laughs> um, this is my favorite part. Okay. So this sixth pamphlet, which was the one that they redistributed right before the janitor caught them, which mm. made them go to prison and executed. Mm-hmm. The sixth pamphlet was smuggled out of Germany and got into the hands of some of the Brits Ooh, in the UK. the Allies, yeah. And it got into the hands of the Allied forces. The Allied forces made millions of copies oh, of smart. it. Mm-hmm. They retitled it. The Manifesto of the Students of Munich. Oh, bravo. They dropped it from airplanes <laughs> over Germany. So all the Germans walked down. There's millions of copies of Good. Sophie and Hans's pamphlet. You were Gina George that shit. Oh, I want to cry. <laughs> And that's they, good. They shared their final words throughout all of Germany and that's shared good. it with everyone. 
That's good. I'm going to cry. Yes. Someone like Megan who enjoys a good a good Jew story. Jew story. This is this is this is it. Oh, <laughs> but I'm it's crying. true though. I mean a I lot can't. No, but I love that that their their final pamphlet was distributed. It, it wasn't was published. In vain. Yeah, well it wasn't in vain, you know. And even to this day in 2003 they made a bust like a a replica of Sophie that stands right on the grounds near the University of Munich that basically tells everyone about her sacrifice and how much she gave to the cause. You know, so she was certainly a wave, as she said. Like, it it was a tidal wave of just, hey, these are the atrocities that are happening. We can't just all be this, like, slumbering Germany that's willing to accept these war crimes. This Don't is not okay. It. Yeah, and, and a, a lot of that just really solidified the Allies' belief in what they were doing and belief in, again— making sure World War II was won by the Allies. So this was this was powerful, even though their actual lives were short, you know, and what they did in terms of campaigning might have seemed small in comparison to a lot of these armies. It was very powerful. And She was only 21 years old. 21. It reminds me very much of our Zoya episode. The, yeah, I got some flashbacks. Yeah, and Joan of Arc. It was like you were at 21, though. Ooh, I don't want to think drunk at a sorority party. <laughs> um, this in girl's, Vegas, I'm just kidding. This girl's a little more adult. <laughs> pamphlets, and it's just, it's a really good story. If you are interested in Sophie Scholl, mm. the book that inspired me is called The Traitor by V.S. Alexander. It looks very good. It's a historical fiction. So Sophie's not the main character. It's told through someone else's story, but she, um, her, Hans, Christoph, Willie, they're all in it, and they kind of slip through as um the not protagonist but like the supportive characters right supporting and you don't realize until the end like oh my god wait what happened with them and then there's a complete afterward and like the story of sophie i love when like whenever i read a historical fiction book and i find out that either the central character or many of the characters were part of real real yeah they're real people i didn't know that while i was reading it i thought it was just okay it's another one my mom's like concentration camp books okay (laughs) Um, this is a novel inspired by the daring true story of the white rose i love that Um, so i highly recommend i read it very quickly because I was very engrossed in it. Very into it. Um, but I love that. So, um, Elizabeth, on that very enlightening note, any final words? Happy Christmas to our European listeners. Merry Christmas to our American listeners. Mm-hmm. And we will see you all in the new year. 